High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hey there, High Truth listeners. I'm so excited to be sharing a vaporizing episode with you. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Vaping. Is it helping smokers quit or is it creating more smokers? I was in the White House in 2019 when a vaping epidemic broke out. Young people were dying from vaping, and the CDC named the new disease E-Valley, Electronic Vaping Associated Lung Illness. That's a mouthful. And they did a great job at mitigating the problem by warning the public about it. It was a very interesting investigation in that the FDA researched the devices associated with the illness while the CDC investigated the people who were sick. And together, they concluded that E-Valley was caused by vaping, mostly marijuana products, and largely due to the chemical E-acetate in the vape. I wanted to know how many people were harmed by electronic cigarettes or vapes compared to how many people were saved from cigarettes by vaping. I was struggling with numbers calculations until I contacted the tobacco office at the CDC. CDC has all sorts of offices. And they told me that that research and modeling has already been done. Scientists used a simulation model and calculated years of life gained or years of life lost by e-cigarettes. And here's what they found. Smokers who quit vaping would gain 3,000 years of life but adolescents and young adults who start vaping would lose 1.5 million years of life. 3,000 years gained versus 1.5 million years lost. What do you think of that public health analysis? The scientists calculated that for every one adult who quits cigarettes using a vape product, 80 adolescents who never smoked would eventually become daily cigarette smokers through vaping. One adult, versus 80 kids. Yikes, what would you vote for saving? If we follow the science, approving vape products was and remains a public health mistake. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. My name is Guan Hui Chen. I'm currently a PGY1 pharmacy resident. Thank you for your educational podcast. You have episodes that are beneficial to my extended learning even after graduating. So from my experience in the hospital, I have seen many patients who are drug users, including those who vape. Uh, my question is, how has vaping changed the landscape of legal and illicit drug environment? Thank you. Thank you so much, Guan Hui, for your very important question and for your work in the hospital, in pharmacies, and working on the issue of uh, drug use that I know that you do as a pharmacist um, and uh, we're going to get the best answer from a great expert, somebody who I know well and is always full of data and facts, Dr. William Lynch. Dr. Lynch received his pharmacy degree from Rutgers University and is a practicing clinical pharmacist with Jefferson Health System. 
Dr. Lynch has over 35 years of clinical practice with expertise in pain, addiction, emergency medicine, medical education, and community work on overdoses. Dr. Lynch and I both serve together as speakers for the National Marijuana Initiative Speakers Bureau and are experts for the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Isaac. You can find Dr. William Lynch's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. William Lynch, welcome to High Truths. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the invitation to participate. I am excited about this conversation. You and I get together and we could like chat on forever and now our audience gets to hear us uh, blabbering together about our favorite (laughs) topic, drugs, right? Looking forward to it. So I want our audience to get to know you a little bit. Why do you care so much about drug addiction, vaping, marijuana, the whole gamut? You're a pharmacist and so why of all the different drugs, there's cancer drugs and diabetic drugs, why is this such a focus of yours? Well, it's interesting because we get asked this question a lot when we'll actually go out and present to colleges and high schools, you know, what's your passion and why are you so passionate about it, just like you asked me. And really the issue is, uh, as you know, being an ER physician, I was really troubled by the number of young people that we see coming into our emergency room in our hospital and significantly having uh, severe outcomes that are a negative outcome, a lot of deaths. And so the issue was if I actually go out and present to these young people and adults as well, to help them try to understand how significant this problem is. The potential is really there before where we were worried about, yes, you may become addicted to these substances, as you well know, with all the substances that are out there and how potent they are. Sometimes I'll describe it as one and done, where someone just tries something and they don't survive and it's catastrophic. And the ripple effect that we would see through the families is tremendous. And I describe it as there's nothing that I've witnessed like the guttural wail of a mother who has just lost her child. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. And I can see you shaking your head because you understand because you've seen it as well. And so that's why we became involved in it, to try to uh, tell people and inform them about what's going on out there. And then when they do know what's going on out there, I will challenge them and say, now you are making an informed decision. Before you may have not known, you know, you were ignorant, you didn't understand how significant it was, how bad it was. And a lot of people tell you, I knew it was bad, I didn't know it was this bad. So what I'll do is share that information with them and hopefully they've changed the behavior. And I do a survey at the end of every one of my talks and that will come back with regards to they set up their code with their family so they can get out of a situation if they have to. Do they actually change the behavior of, I'm gonna stop vaping. I'm not gonna continue using marijuana. I'm going to change, I'm gonna mention it to my friends. You know, know, I asked specifically, who who will you speak with? You know, parents, sons, daughters, friends, teachers, whoever, so that they themselves spread the word and get the word out. So that's why we become passionate about it. And hopefully uh, through different channels, it's come back to me that it has worked for people. And so the question becomes, if I can be that instrument to get the word out, then uh, that's what I try to do is to explain to people how this. And I think that their understanding is being a pharmacist, you understand medications, you understand these kind of chemicals. So to really be able to frame for them the significance of how severe of a problem we have in our country and in the sec- part of the country that where I work and also where you are as well. Right. So I want our audience to know that you're a pharmacist, but when people think of pharmacies, they think of somebody behind, you know, a pharmacy counter. No, you are the kind of pharmacist um, that works in the emergency department side by side with the emergency department, doctors and nurses, seeing patients, helping um, to give the right doses of medications. Um, so yeah, you're, really, inter- you're a clinical pharmacist. And- yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective. So we're actually also clinical, but we're also overnight. So as you know, that we'll see a lot of individuals who come in, unfortunately they overdose at night. So a lot of times we have to run up to the emergency room. We have responsibility for the entire hospital, but so we'll also get to follow them after they're admitted to the intensive care unit or those kind of things as well. So our involvement is truly in a hospital and we're actually uh, involved with those patients quite significantly with regards to their care. And in particular, what I'll say all the time is, as you know, being an emergency room physician, your staff is managing that with your with you treating patients. But if the pharmacist has to run up there and show up to bring certain medications or whatever, this person's not doing too well because if we have to bring special medication to treat them, that's not a good sign. So that's when I'll become involved in it uh, with regards to bringing up some social naloxone infusions and those kind of things that they need right away. Yeah, so th- that's true. Like in the ER, if I have a patient who needs to be in a, a Narcan drip, naloxone drip, because one dose, two dose, three dose wasn't enough, I call the pharmacist, that's you, and you can help us out with the dosing and the uh, drips and calculations. You guys are good at math. 
Um, to try to be. Yeah. So Guan Wei is a pharmacy resident, and he has a question for you. Um, he's asking, how has vaping changing the current landscape of both le legal and illicit market? So what has vaping done? We've seen now uh, a lot of people use those devices. People think that they're, you know, benign, even helpful to stop smoking. How has that affected the whole drug scene? Well, the one that I like to refer to vaping as is that people need to think of vaping as a delivery system. So in particular, if you think of a syringe, you can put multiple medications in it. You can administer it different ways. You can give it intramuscularly into someone's muscle. You can give it intravenously into their vein. You can give it subcutaneously under their skin. Well, with vaping as a device, those cartridges can contain almost anything in them. And unfortunately, a lot of times people who use them don't even know that they actually have certain substances in them. A lot of times they're not labeled with the diluents that are in there. Sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes other substances that aren't labeled in there. Sometimes they think they're getting, they're actually not getting that particular substance. So there's been some interesting information about that. They had a situation in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, where uh, we received an alert from our New Jersey State Police Fusion Center partners to uh, law enforcement and healthcare professionals that in West Virginia, they had an issue where students had bought what they thought was just going to be cannabis oil to vape that through their vaping device. And it ended up being TKO actually had heroin in it and they suffered opiate overdoses because of it. It also had in that particular cartridge contained flubromazolam, which is an illicit benzodiazepine. And fortunately none of these students died, but they did have significant overdoses thinking they were just gonna have cannabis oil and get exposed to THC through vaping it. But they actually got exposed to an opiate and a benzodiazepine and had suffered significant consequences from that. There's other data that shows that individuals will take vaping devices and use multitude of substances. So one in particular survey looked at over 12,000 patients saying, if you use your vaping devices, do you put anything else in there? And over 49% of them, almost half said, yes, they do. And the substances were significant. It was MDMA, it was synthetic cannabinoids, cannabis oils, resins, it was ketamine, it was methamphetamine, it was heroin, it was benzodiazepines. It was significant with regards to the variety of substances that people will use. And a lot of times it's mixed. So now you have either polysubstance overdose, you have competing agents, let's say fentanyl and cocaine. Fentanyl is going to slow you down. Cocaine is going to rev you up. They're competing against each other, depending upon how much of each of those substances is in there. So all of those things are significant. And it's changed the landscape because it makes it easier where people don't want to inject. They may actually be willing to vape. And vaping actually, because of the microparticles through the lung tissue and the oropharynx, they're able to absorb things at a much higher rate, even if they just smoke it. So as example, if you vape marijuana versus smoke marijuana, you're gonna get a higher exposure by vaping it because of how microparticalized the substance becomes when you vape it compared to when you smoke it. And if that leads to greater absorption and the potency of marijuana being higher, you can have much more of a significant impact and also overdose from those types of substances when you get a greater exposure. So, so I wanna it, emphasize what you just said. First of all, sure. people don't know what they're smoking because they mm -hmm. think they're getting something, something else. But your other point's very important. If if you had the same milligrams uh, or percentage THC in a, in a blunt or mm -hmm. in a joint and you put the same amount in a vape, you'll have more in your body. Um, Yes, and actually it's a terminology that you're familiar with too, and we are as pharmacists called bioavailability. So the reason I bring that up to like a syringe is that if you give something under the skin, you're gonna get a certain amount of, the, of exposure to that milligram. If you actually inject it into muscle, you'll get a different exposure to that, to that substance uh, under the skin uh, in the muscle. But if you give it intravenously, you get 100% of exposure to it. Well, it's similar with regards to vaping and that if you actually vape a substance and the same milligram dose that you mentioned, you're gonna get a greater exposure to it because of how it's microparticalized and gets into the smaller recesses of the lung tissue like the alveoli for that exchange. And if that happens, you may get it obviously a greater exposure to it. So even though it's the same milligram dose, it may have a more beneficial, a more deleterious effect. So as an example, 
there is data that showed from Johns Hopkins where they took individuals who got exposed to marijuana for the first time and they smoked it and they vaped it. And they did visual analog scores. They did uh, measuring their heart rate with regards to cannabis notoriously increases heart rate for tachycardia. And what they showed was those individuals who vaped marijuana had a greater increase in their heart rate. They had greater deficits in their visual analog scores and other tests compared to those who smoked it. Those who smoked it still had deficits but those who vaped it, the, deficit, the deficits were greater and the tachycardia was higher, showing you that obviously that was because of the fact, and they were exposed to similar doses, 10 milligrams and 25 milligrams of THC, that even though it was the same dose, because of the method of delivery, like you said, smoking a blunt or a joint compared to vaping it, the vaping impact was greater, even though the doses were the same. I think that's important to, for people to realize. But a lot of people tell me that, oh, well, I, I vape, and I say, what's what do you vape? And they'll say nicotine. And uh, people think that, that, oh, well, that's much healthier than smoking cigarettes. Is that true? It's not. Uh, fortunately, uh, the FDA was kind of in a quandary because, as we mentioned, uh, vapes were viewed as delivery systems and it's the food and drug administration so it's not a food it's not a drug and so what they finally did in june as you are aware that the jewel was finally pulled off the market that they were told by the fda you have to pull your substances off the market because of the deleterious effect so there's interesting data with regards to that in that only about 3.2% of adults actually have used vaping devices to stop smoking. Some people have benefited from that. Those numbers appear to be small and only 3.2% of those who use it were adults. But when people made wedding cake and bubblegum flavor and watermelon, that wasn't targeted to you and I to stop smoking. That was targeted to young people, particularly uh, young adults and youth to engage in using it. And then because they did, they got exposed to it. The other concern is that some of these concentrations of nicotine that are in essentially eyedropper size bottles, which is only 10 mLs through essentially two teaspoons full of fluid. Some of the concentrations in there can be no nicotine at all, but as high as 24 milligrams, which is a significant because if you put too much of it in there, you can get exposed to significant amounts of nicotine with its vasoconstrictive effect. Before all of uh, COVID hit and the Valley hit with regards to vaping. There was a huge release with Scott Gottlieb at the time, who was the FDA commissioner, regarding seizures from individuals who were naive to nicotine who would actually get exposed to it. And because the concentrations were so high when they vaped it, there were significant incidents of seizures. And seizures are a known side effect of nicotine toxicity. And so that's a perfect example of being exposed to a substance at greater doses and especially being naive to it where that nicotine vasoconstrictive effect can be so severe that it cuts off blood flow uh, through the carotid arteries and others to the brain where people actually had seizures from it. So it can be quite detrimental with regards to it. And the other issue that people really don't talk about is nicotine can actually be absorbed through the skin. So now what happens is an eyedropper bottle that's bubblegum flavored and the five-year-old who actually gets it because their older brother or sister uses this in a vaping device, they grab it and they're running around the house with it, holding it. And now they're absorbing nicotine through their skin. If they're able to actually open the container and actually consume it by drinking it, we've seen nicotine, severe nicotine poisonings from both ingestion, eating it, and also from just touching it. So we had a situation in New Jersey where a principal of a school seized a vaping device just because the student was using it and they weren't allowed to use it in school and he carried it back to his office. And then unfortunately his administrative person came into his office, unfortunately that she found him passed out and collapsed behind his desk. And he was rushed to the hospital with nicotine poisoning and nicotine toxicity just from absorbing it by holding the vaping device and taking it back to his office. So it can be significant with regards to even accidental exposures that people aren't aware of by handling that's, these that's little a vials. unusual case. Yes, it is. It is unusual. Yeah, like but the thing about it is also, as you mentioned, is that when they're so concentrated with these flavors, of course, they can also be ingested and can be actually a form of toxicity. And we know it's actually being used, unfortunately, as a new method to commit suicide because they know the nicotine poison can be severe enough that they'll ingest those high concentrations of nicotine to succumb to actually the substance. Wow, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. I saw one of your slides where you said one jewel pod is an entire pack of cigarettes with 59 grams of nicotine. Is that, tell me about that. Is that really, I mean, it's supposed to be, uh, it's marketed for tobacco cessation, but are you really s stopping to use tobacco if you're getting that much nicotine? 
now it actually enhances the other direction, but you're right. So the equivalency is that one joule pod is equivalent to one pack of cigarettes, and that's 59 milligrams of nicotine. There is a smaller dose, it's 35 milligrams, but still that's significant. And the way that I couch that for people when you're asking about you know, being a pharmacist is that, as you well know, we have nicotine replacement patches that people use for smoking cessation. Well, those patches only come in seven, 14, and 21 milligrams. Well, if you have a jewel pod the size of a flash drive, that's 59 milligrams of nicotine, that amount is significant. So if a young person is using a vaping device and they use these jewel pods, if they use two pods a day, mango flavor, they're getting exposed to two packs of cigarettes a day for nicotine content at 59 milligrams per pod. And that's significant. And the other thing that's interesting about vaping is vaping is different than smoking. And what I mean by that was when people smoke, they inhale and they exhale. But when they vape, they hold it and then they exhale. And when they do that, they have exposure extended with what they have inhaled into their lungs the entire time they hold it. And what's important that I talk to people about vaping devices is if you notice the anatomy of a vaping device per se, there's no filter at the end. So when individuals vape, they get exposed to everything that's in there. And what's disturbing is that vaping devices have the potential to get up to anywhere from 1,000 to 1,400 degrees centigrade. So 212 degrees Fahrenheit is boiling, 100 degrees centigrade is boiling. This is anywhere from 1,000 to 1,400 degrees centigrade. So now the concern is, even though you think it's THC, even though you think it's some other substance that you're using, when those substances get exposed to that level of heat or thermal energy, they can easily be changed into what those substances are. And that could be really detrimental because you're really getting exposed to something now that you have no idea what it is and what that chemical conversion that occurs from that thermal energy exposure with the heat changes some of these substances significantly. And that's also a concern when people get exposed to whatever it is that they're actually vaping. So what's the bottom line of what the FDA has done? They they pulled the different flavors off the market, mm-hmm. but then, then they left the methanol. Now they want to take out the methanol. Then they said they pulled the jewel out of the market, but I think it's back on. So I'm sure I'm sure it is because I'm sure the jewel would challenge any type of FDA thing by court. I'm sure they got a stay order. Now it's not the one that was really concerning is when they outlaw when they outlawed the flavorings per se that the loophole in the law was the disposable vapes. So the disposable vapes were not in that loophole. So you can still get Fuego and other ones are actually disposable vapes, one-time use, but they're all flavored and they come with these cartridges that go in there. There's purple haze. It has THC in it. You can see that on the label, those kind of things. And it's a cannabis oil. But with even regards to the ones that aren't with marijuana in it, just the nicotine uh, substances, those can still be flavored, especially in a disposable type of vape. And that's really important because people can still get exposed to it. People can still get the flavorings. And that still is obviously going to be targeted to a younger audience with regards to youth and young adults. And so that has still continued with regards to exposure. And as you well know, being a physician, nicotine is a highly addictive substance. And so once they're hooked on that, they have to get some kind of exposure to it. And what better way than just straight up nicotine or just menthol to still be able to get disposable flavorings and still get blueberry and watermelon and strawberry and wedding cake and whatever other flavor they want. So that's another concern about the loopholes in the law. Yeah, I think um, vaping has been a huge public health mistake. Unfortunately, not our first mistake. I think there have been uh, models showing that for every one person who maybe quits uh, smoking through vaping, and I say maybe because those studies were done in Europe where the smoking is way more acceptable and prominent than in the United States. But based on that European model of smoking, here in America, we've created 80 new adolescents and young adults who would otherwise never have been exposed. I think it's been a a public health mistake, Um, clearly by the numbers, but again, uh, profits kind of oversee uh, public health, we've seen that uh, right. in a and, number and of it was, And it was couched, like you said, with the quote unquote good idea, we're gonna have people stop smoking and it really didn't turn out that way. The other thing that's most disturbing is, you're saying about changing the landscape, is that vaping has led to other substances of abuse. So one of the interesting meta-analysis they did is they looked at 21 different studies of 18 to 24 year olds 
And what they uh, looked at was regards to uh, if someone vapes, do they go on, I'm sorry, it was 12 to 24 year olds, do they go on to progress to using marijuana? And what they found was of, of the seven, of 19 of the 21 studies, all of them had odds ratios greater than one, which indicated that those who vaped went on to use marijuana. And what was most disturbing was when they separated the data, looking at those who were 12 to 17 versus those who were 18 to 24, the 12 to 17 year olds progressed at a greater odds ratio to going on to use marijuana than those who were 18 to 24. The 18 to 24 year olds still progressed to marijuana as well, significantly with odds ratios, but the odds ratios were even greater if they were 12 to 17. And that was also with if they engaged in dual use, which you know, someone who actually vapes, do they also smoke? And if they smoke and vape, because smoking is cheaper, uh, because they have dual use, that had a greater chance of going on to use marijuana. And the other caveat was if the data was later, 2017 and more recently, those studies showed a greater propensity to go on to use marijuana than some of the earlier studies did. And that's interesting. That's the whole gateway drug uh, theory that some people don't like. Um, but I can't help because this is what I see every day. I haven't seen a single person who uses fentanyl or overdose or died of fentanyl that didn't start with marijuana. Not everybody who uses marijuana goes on to use fentanyl, but everybody who's using fentanyl at one point started their journey to drugs with marijuana. Yeah, it's older data, but there's information that shows just what you're saying, which is that those who are actually uh, heroin, fentanyl addicts, opiate addicts, 92% of them will tell you that they had somewhere in their drug history an exposure with marijuana and juice. So I say to people that just what you mentioned, it's true that everyone who uses marijuana does not go on to become a fentanyl or heroin addict. However, there are a significant number of people who do. And where with regards to marijuana being a gateway drug or a door opener, for some individuals, it's a super highway to other substance abuse because if they get exposed to THC and get that level of dopamine surge because of it, and now someone gives them a oxycodone pill to try where they get exposed to it and they get a greater surge of, meth of uh, dopamine, or if they get exposed to methamphetamine, get a greater surge of dopamine, that progresses them onto methamphetamine or an opiate pill from marijuana because the dopamine surge is greater and it's more rewarding and therefore more addicting. And that's why they'll progress as other substances. For some individuals, it is. It's a it's a gateway. It's a door opener. And unfortunately, for some people, a super highway to other substances of abuse. Right. And what's different now is people in our generation will look back at your their youth and they'll say, you know, I used pot when I was a kid. You know, I'm fine now. I'm okay. I'm not addicted to anything. Um, but what's different is the potency, right? This is a mm -hmm. different drug today, what kids are exposed to. You know, when, when uh, you know, 30 years ago, I never saw marijuana poisonings in the emergency department. Now I see it every single day, and that's because it's a different drug. Right, and actually what I'll tell the people to put this in perspective is when I actually just went to uh, college to present and also the high schools at the end of the year because they're getting ready to go on their summer breaks. We told them that with regards to the way that marijuana has changed, just the time that you've been in high school is staggering. So the way I bring that up is my son, who's also a clinical pharmacist, is 26 years old. When he was born in 1995, the average concentration of THC was only 3.96%. When he graduated from high school less than 10 years ago, it was only 12 to 13%. And as you well know, some of these plant material that's now become oils, that's now become concentrates, that's now become distillates, are 90%, 99% THC. That's totally different. Totally different than even when my son was in high school, let alone you and I in our youth, with regards to what quote unquote concentrations of THC existed. It is significantly different in this day and age and recent history, even like I said, 10 years, five years, the time that they've been in high school, when you enrolled as a freshman and now you're graduating as a senior before you go off to college, when you get exposed to marijuana products now, the THC concentration is way different than even when you first started high school because of these concentrates and distillates and oils. And what it has shown in data from 2017 is there's been a major shift in the United States from using plant material for marijuana to the oils and the concentrates. And then the difference has gotten significantly greater with regards to use of oils and concentrates compared to the plant material. So this is truly vaping cannabis oil and concentrates and hookahs and distillates is way greater with regards to use now than it was 
before and currently of using like a blunt or a joint. People still do that. But with regards to that, it's very different uh, now with regards to them using oils and concentrates and distillates. It's a totally different, different situation out there. I'm going to copy you, Bill. I really like that example of using your son and, and history. Sure. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going well, to copy that with my is, kids. It's, I love it's funny. That. I, put, I put it in perspective in that. I jokingly say when I go out to the high schools and the colleges, I say, I know what all of you are thinking, but possibly is an old, fat, bearded, bald guy going to tell us about drug abuse. And I told him, look, I'm a clinical pharmacist. I go to the emergency room. I see you. That's why I'm here talking about the passion thing earlier. But the way I put it in perspective is, you know, how many here are 18 years of age. Well, guess what? My son is 26. That's 10 years from now, 10 years from now that you've actually had the concentration of THC since you were born go from 3.96% to 99%. That's totally different. Totally different. And like I said, even when he graduated from high school, 18 to 26 was the big change. That was 12% to almost 99%. That's staggering with regards to how different it is. I think that that resonates with them understanding, oh, this has really changed quite significantly in my lifetime as a young adult, as as a teenager. And it has, it really has changed significantly with regards to the concentration and potency. And the other thing I copy you with is a statement that you made about what a cigarette does to your lung, marijuana does to your brain. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and effects of uh, mental health. Maybe you want to expand upon that. Sure. What I'll say is that uh, what tobacco is to the lungs, marijuana is to the mind, I think even more so than just the brain. And the reason I bring that up is because, like you said, there are definitely documented changes that occur in the brain from marijuana use. We know from PET scans that we see things shrink with the corpus callosum, whether they had a psychotic break or not, because it got exposed to THC. It was an interesting study out of Britain, and that showed that the corpus callosum, which is the communication center between the two hemispheres of the brain, that it shrunk when they were exposed to THC, ironically of only 16%. So again, a much lower potency, but still showing change in the brain. We know the hippocampus and the amygdala shrink because of being exposed to THC. And that's important with regards to physical changes. But what's important is that THC also interrupts the chemical neurotransmitters in the brain with regards to their proper functioning. So in particular, I have a five-year-old grandson and he's learning all kinds of stuff, Spanish and soccer and swimming and everything else. And you know that when that happens in their youth, they have multiple neurons that get developed with regards to connections. Here's how you swim. Here's how you kick a soccer ball. Here's how you speak Spanish. But then as you get older and you don't use those particular uh, tasks or those particular languages or learnings, then your body as a teenager starts to get rid of those, starts pruning those things away that you don't use as much. So if you learned how to play golf at nine years old and you haven't golfed in the last 30 years, your golf game's probably not that good because your body's pruned those transmitters because you focused on something else. And those myelin sheaths, well, we know for, in particular, it definitely interferes with the myelin sheathing of those neurons, which is huge. And so the key there is that not only our brain structures- So let's explain myelin sheathing. It's the conductor, right? It's the coding of your neurons that makes things go, communication goes faster. It's very important because if you don't have myelin, you have diseases such as multiple sclerosis. Right. So what I'll say to the people is that a way that I get across to the individuals is that it's similar to I'm speaking to you now. And my words are those neurotransmitters. You hear what I'm saying, you understand what I'm saying, and that's fine. Well, that's similar with regards to in the brain, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine are talking, and those different words, as in chemical transmitters, send different messages. And when that myelin sheathing is intact, they communicate way faster, way greater, way more accurate. When it is demyelinated, they don't function as well. And so those messages are interrupted or they're disturbed or they're not proper as they would be. And so we know that that pruning and the myelization occur significantly during uh, teenage years and young adults with regards to their brains coming to full fruition of formation. And so if they're using THC, it's a major impact to that. So that to me is also translated in what THC has been shown to do with regards to psychotic behavior, schizophrenia, mental health issues. So not only is marijuana significant with how it impacts the brain, it is also significant how it impacts the mind. And that's the whole way with regards to not just the structures of the brain, but how the brain actually functions and communicates. It is disturbed when exposed to significant cannabis and THC use. And the other thing that you've seen, that I've heard you talk about is um, vape explosions. I've had (laughs) 
I've treated a couple people. One guy, his vaping uh, device was in his pocket and it uh, combusted, exploded, and he had a bunch of burns on both his hand, like reaching to his pocket and his leg. Um, but I know that that's happened in people's mouths and areas. Is they they I'm told there are now more safety measures on these vape devices, so that doesn't happen. Um, can you explain to us about the device? How does that happen? How do you prevent it? Sure. Well, some of the things is uh, the vaping devices themselves actually have different wattages, so that's important. So depending upon the higher the wattage, you have a higher power source with those batteries, and then of course they can explode. What people don't realize is how significant those lithium batteries are with getting exposed to changes in temperature. So what I'll mention with regards to youth and young adults is they don't want to be detected from their parents or someone else that they're vaping. So they store the vaping device, let's say, in the glove compartment of their car. So here in the Northeast, where I live, you can actually have an issue in the Mid-Atlantic area with regards to one day at night, it's 52 degrees. And during the daytime, it gets up to 97 degrees. And now in your car, it's up to 120 degrees. Well, that exposure to those batteries of 50 some degrees at night and then 97, 120 degrees in the car during the day can compromise those batteries. And the reason I bring that up is because people will change their jewel pod or their cartridge they don't change their vaping device. They bought that device and they just use it over and over and over again. And so when that happens and they get compromised, those batteries, they have a potential for explosions. Now, the other issue is that we have, there's documented cases of, like you said, the burns, they're significant in the pockets because people actually will hide them there. But what we mentioned is that a lot of people, especially in school and in high school, who they can't have vaping devices there will take those vaping devices and young gentlemen will put them in the middle of their pants. So some school resource officer pats them down, they don't find it. Young women will put it up here in their chest and their, in their bra, so that actually they won't get detected there. But if those things have some kind of malfunction where they heat up or they get hot, people have significant burns in areas of their body that they don't want to have significant burns. And like you said, some of the burns can be really significant if they're vaping and it actually explodes in their face. There's a documented case that was published in Women's Journal of Medicine of a 17-year-old in Utah who the explosion was so violent that it actually knocked out teeth in his jaw and also fractured his jaw with regards to the actual explosion. So it can be significant with regards to the power. And then like I mentioned earlier, is that the temperature that these things heat up to can be anywhere from 1100 to 1400 degrees centigrade. And that is extremely, extremely hot. So you have those kind of injuries. There's a documented case in Florida of a gentleman who actually was vaping. It exploded, his house caught on fire. The fire department thought that they had another fatality from a house fire in particular from smoke inhalation. When they did the autopsy, they found that when the vaping device exploded, the one part went off forward and caught his house on fire, but the other part exploded and went up through the palate of his mouth, oh. the roof of his mouth into his brain. And he actually died from that trauma of a brain injury from an explosion of the vaping device than he actually did from the smoke inhalation from the actual fire. So they can be pretty violent. And there was a case uh, a couple of years ago of someone just charging their vaping device in the Las Vegas airport. And when it exploded right away, if you're in an airport near an explosion, people don't think it's a vaping device being charged. They think worse thoughts. And of course, caused a panic in the airport because people thought there was some kind of attack or some kind of violent behavior that was going on. And it literally was just someone charging their vaping device that actually had malfunctioned and exploded. So it's significant with regards to somehow when these things malfunction, how significant they be. Now, interesting enough, our New Jersey State Police has released to our law enforcement uh, divisions in the state that when they char when they actually uh, see some of these vaping devices because of illicit drug use and those kind of things, that when they store them, they have to make sure that they're turned off. And so one of the things you're saying about other uh, safety measures being put built into these devices now, some of them you have to push three times to actually really turn them off. You kind of put them in a sleep mode, but not turn them off all the way if you don't hit it three times, those kind of things. So their warning was for law enforcement to make sure that these things are disassembled and also turned off because there have been cases where they have caught on fire in the evidence room and the evidence has actually been destroyed for these criminal cases. So that's also a significant thing. And when they sent this warning out, they also talked about, like we mentioned about the principle, unfortunately you got exposed with handling it, is that they should use gloves, masks, and those kind of things when they handle them because you may get accidentally exposed to substances in these vaping devices. You have no idea you're in there. So to take those kind of precautions for either transdermal absorption through your hand holding it or those other types of potential exposure. So there's a lot of potential environmental, accidental, occupational risks 
to using some of these or handling some of these devices. Yeah, and I know that um, if you're flying, you're not supposed to put your vape device mm -hmm. in um, uh, in checked luggage. You could have right. it in the cabinet with you, and they recommend not. Right, and that's it because of, and that's for two things: one, the temperature changes, and also pressure. And the pressure and the temperature changes affecting that lithium battery in those vaping devices. And then do they become compromised and cause an explosion? And that's why they're not to be put in carried on luggage. I'm sorry, they're supposed to be put in carry on luggage and not be put in checked luggage, like you said. So there is um, information that needs to be cleared up about fentanyl and vaping and uh, in marijuana products. Um, we've seen cases, I definitely know that in San Diego, we were the first to report in the country, somebody who had fentanyl in their vape device and died from that. So we know that that, that can happen and is happening. Um, but there's reports like Michigan Public Health that people who are using marijuana have fentanyl in it and it, they died. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's confusion because if you burn um, marijuana is in smoking it, does it really burn the, the fentanyl and make it um, not active? Well, what ends up happening is we've actually have, I can tell you some newer information. So there is documented cases out of the state of Connecticut where individuals who were vaping and they thought it was only THC oil, that they actually, when they were revived, and came to swore that the only thing they did was marijuana. However, they were reversed with naloxone successfully. And when the drug paraphernalia that was being used was confiscated by law enforcement and those samples were tested, they definitively tested positive for fentanyl in with the THC. So we know definitively that's been the case. Uh, in, and it's documented in the literature that was sent out from New Jersey State Police to all of us to make us aware of that. So that's, that's in the occur. vaping product. Can you do that? Um, if you go to a dispensary and you buy plant uh, flour, um, could that have fentanyl in it? Yes, I'm not aware of that so much. Yes, and actually the, the way that that's done is the, the fentanyl is actually liquefied. So we had a big seizure of from Virginia of a truckload of Capri Sun packages that the liquid inside the Capri Sun packaging was liquid fentanyl. So it's not a tablet, it's not a fake pill, it's not powder. It was actually truly liquefied. And actually from law enforcement, they'll tell you that a lot of substances now are being liquefied, including methamphetamine and others to make it easier to transport it, less detectable by canine officers, those kind of things. So they're significant with regards to, you can liquefy fentanyl. And as you know, we have fentanyl injection Perfect example, it's liquefied fentanyl. You can actually take that and then actually spray it on marijuana material. You can dip it in fentanyl. There's lots of ways you can get exposed to uh, liquefied fentanyl being then placed on uh, plant material, but you can also obviously put in a cartridge like we talked about. But are there cases of uh, blunts and joints where people have died from using those products or is it just the I, vaping? I don't know if there's cases of them dying. I do know that suppose it was plant material that was tainted or laced or cut or stepped on, whatever terminology you want to use. In Connecticut, there were 40 cases and, and different parts of the state, which is key. It wasn't like there was one party and there were 40 people there and something happened. These were 40 different instances across the state of Connecticut where they were able to seize the drug paraphernalia and the substances that these young people had used to truly document from forensic lab testing that these samples tested positive for THC and fentanyl, and some of it was plant material. Interesting, so, and then, and some of these people overdosed. Oh, there's no doubt they overdosed. Fortunately, I don't know of a fatality case, so there wasn't a fatality, but what was key here is that the individuals were treated with naloxone and naloxone worked. So it truly reversed right. an opiate overdose. You know as well as I do, it's not gonna work on THC if it's significant for a THC overdose, but it will work on an opiate overdose and did significantly. But what's interesting is the young people when they were revived were adamant that they did not use an opiate. They did not have any opiates that they knew about, planned on using, had purchased. They had truly right. purchased marijuana material, thinking they were just gonna get high from using marijuana and unfortunately had opiate overdoses because the fentanyl that was contained in the marijuana substances that they purchased. 
What's what's helpful in these uh, situations, and unfortunately, I run into this all the time with whatever product. It's like, no, 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 I didn't do fentanyl. I I only used Viagra, or I only used a pill, or I only used cocaine or meth. We actually have drug screening in real time that shows fentanyl. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give that information to the patient. I'll ask them, do you want to find out whether you're exposed to, to fentanyl? A lot of them say yes, and I'm able to say, yeah, what you thought was cocaine or meth or MDMA is actually you had fentanyl in your system. And mm -hmm. people are very appreciative of that information. They go home and do something different. I urge every hospital in the United States to include fentanyl in their, in their drug screens because it, it does make a difference in that sense. Yeah, and actually where we are, it's significant in that our data shows from 2015 in the first quarter, heroin samples that were sent to New Jersey State Police Forensics Lab, that 98% of those only tested positive for heroin back in 2015. When you fast forward to now the second quarter of 2022, and you have heroin samples sent to our forensics labs, what it shows is that only 3% test positive for only heroin, 97% test positive for fentanyl. And the other thing that's concerning in New Jersey is, and I don't know how significant this is in California where you are, but New Jersey has demonstrated that we have had fentanyl in our drug supply since 2013. And in 2014, and to the present time, we have now added 40, 40 different fentanyl analogs mm. in our drug supply. So the key there is that some of those are more potent than fentanyl, like car fentanyl, significantly more potent than fentanyl. We have had that in our drug supply in New Jersey. And then also something like fluorofentanyl that's slightly less potent than fentanyl, but you still have a fentanyl exposure and can still have a fentanyl overdose from it. And it's significant because New Jersey is only second to the state of Ohio for the number of analogs that are out there. And we've also had, I don't know if this has been introduced in California, where we've had cases of ISO or isonidazine, that's the new potent opiate, even more potent than fentanyl. And there's mm -hmm. seven analogs to isonidazine as well. And we've had those analogs in New Jersey, and in particular, in the place where I work, it was protonidazine was the analog that we had exposures to uh, in South Jersey, is significant with regards to even other substances are out there even more potent. But with regards to fentanyl, uh, there's fentanyl cases, and then there's also fentanyl analog cases, which are significant. And I think that your fentanyl drug screen is a great idea with regards to looking for fentanyl so people know that. But then also, uh, there's the possibility that maybe even some of those fentanyl analogs may not test positive yeah. on the drug some screen because they may have detected. Some of them won't pick up isonidazine. It won't pick it up. So mm -hmm. And then even some of the potential fentanyl analogs. It may not detect if the structure is different enough that the drug screen may not pick it up. So The other thing that's not... Uh, picked up on that that you uh, talk about is xylazine, something that is mm -hmm. a, a lot more on the, I think East Coast and the West Coast. Although we've seen xylazine um, uh, mixed in drugs, which is uh, tell us about what is what's uh, xylazine. Well, xylazine is actually a legitimate substance. It's actually used in veterinary medicine. You know, when they take care of animals and they do procedures on them, they'll use it as a uh, sedative and also a muscle relaxer and all kinds of things. It's an alpha agonist is what xylazine actually is. And what's interesting about it is that it's now being used to significantly cut the fentanyl drug supply here in the Philadelphia area uh, in South and New Jersey. And in particular, uh, 2019 data showed that for the fentanyl overdose deaths in the city of Philadelphia, of which there were over 800 of those, that 31% of the fentanyl overdose deaths in the city of Philadelphia were 31% were actually tainted with xylazine. Now, the reason it's important is because xylazine actually is a substance that makes the opiate overdose worse. Now, the reason it's being used to cut the drug substance is that individuals who use fentanyl will tell you that fentanyl doesn't last as long. It doesn't have the longer half-life like heroin does. So what they'll do is they'll cut it with xylazine to actually have it last longer, the fentanyl, and they'll describe it as it reminds them of the old heroin days where the actual high lasts longer because it's cut with xylazine. The problem with that is that xylazine exacerbates the side effects from the opiate overdose. So it also decreases your heart rate. It also decreases your blood pressure, your respiratory rate, your oxygen saturation. It also constricts pupils. So now when people actually get reversed with naloxone, and we've had this conversation uh, here in the East Coast, are individuals not 
being reversed with naloxone because the opiates are so potent? And the answer to that is no, that's not the case. Naloxone, if you give enough of it, will reverse any opiate if it's truly just an opiate ingestion. The problem is that it does not work on xylazine at all. So now when you've reversed and blocked the fentanyl, you relieve some of the oxygen saturation deficit, you relieve some of the respiratory rate issues, but you don't reverse the xylazine which is contributing to that. And that's led to significant overdoses. And we have had a significant rise in New Jersey with regards to over 240,000 samples sent of xylazine tainted drug supply. And it's also being used to cut cocaine, methamphetamine. It's not just a opiate fentanyl problem. And then here, xylazine, a straight up xylazine overdose is, is called trank. And if it's mixed actually with an opiate, it's called trank dope. And so we had a significant case that actually we've reported on where a patient uh, overdosed on xylazine and fentanyl. And unfortunately, when it's a severe cardiogenic shock, she only had a ejection fraction of her heart of 10% was significant. And then having reversed the cardiogenic shock, we were able to get her back up to 50%. But then the other problem that exists is when they're revived and extubated, they will then precipitate a xylazine withdrawal syndrome that also has to be treated. And so the concern there is being that xylazine is an alpha agonist, you want to give an alpha antagonist like Presidex, dexmedomidine or clonidine. But the problem with those two drugs is they also lower blood pressure. So we ran the risk of actually having her go back into cardiogenic shock by using those drugs to treat her uh, withdrawal syndrome. And actually what you can use is tizanidine, which actually decreases the blood pressure and things less, but is also a QTC prolongator, which you well know that now when you combine with Zofran it's, or Dancetron for the nausea vomiting. Way confusing. It's a mess, it's a mess. <laughs> Just let's say it's a mess. QTs and xylazines and trans, yeah, right. well. Um, well, luckily she's lucky to be alive and I hope that she. Yeah, and actually we're, the good news to the storyline is she actually did survive and she's actually in rehab and she's actually doing well. So we did have good news together, but the concern is that it's, it just becomes very complicated of a case to manage. And we're seeing more and more of that here. I know that there are certain parts of the country they have not seen any xylazine being used to cut anything. And our concern is that as the word gets out that this prolongs the opiate effects, it may spread across the country, And, and just for the, the, the clinician, as, as the pharmacist, as the doctor treating the patient, you don't really know. There's no test for xylazine uh, in no. the hospital setting. You just have to kind of guess. And that's why knowing what's in the drug supply, partnership between law enforcement and the medical community is so important because otherwise we don't know what we're treating as medical providers without that information, that intelligence from from law enforcement. You're, you're just kind of guessing. Um, oh, I, could, I couldn't agree more. We've actually had, with regards to this health prevention sharing network I talked about with New Jersey State Police, we have a call uh, once a month with them uh, where that's just, the, that's just the intention. So the silos that used to list between law enforcement and medical have truly merged significantly for the benefit of both parties, for them to better understand what these overdoses may look like and present when they're dealing with it in the field. And then for us to understand from them, like you mentioned, what is actually out there that's being tested and shown to exist in the drug supply so that the, we would then know actually how to treat them symptomatically and or with even certain antidotes if we know that those substances are actually out there. So let me ask you another little controversy that's happening in, in California. Um, uh, naloxone is a generic name for the reversal agent of opioids, and it comes in uh, a brand called Narcan, which is four milligrams, but it also comes... Uh, in a brand called Cloxado, which is eight milligrams, twice as much. Um, I'm always suspicious of new drugs um, because it's like my first impression when I heard about Cloxado is like, why do they make a new drug? I don't need it. Why don't you just make naloxone over the counter? That's what we really need. We don't right. need new drugs. Um, but it's it's out there. It's the same price. It looks like the same. Um, one. So really the only difference is that one's eight milligrams, what's four milligrams? Um, there's controversy whether uh, Medicaid, Medi-Cal should approve Cloxado and include that in their distribution of naloxone um, to the public. In, in the mm -hmm. hospital, we don't really use these agents, right? We use the the cheap, um, you know, syringe kind, either IV or or intranasally. Um, the the kind that's available for the public is made in in a format with a little pump that's easy to use. But should uh, we or should we not allow, in addition to Narcan, Cloxado, eight milligrams instead of four milligrams? 
the controversy is like, well, we don't want higher dose because it causes precipitated withdrawal. But I'm thinking if we're talking about the lay public, um, you know what, someone's about to die, just give it, you know, the dose is not important, right? If your kids are, we're telling them if, if a child overdoses, use an adult dose. It doesn't, you're not going to overdose on naloxone. Can you yeah, I think that there's, yeah, I think that there's a couple things there. So one would be, I think anytime you have the potential to increase the armamentarium of things that are available for people to use, and especially if you're mentioning there's not really going to be a cost, negative cost impact, that that's beneficial. So as an example, as you well know, someone who actually has a significant history of abusing opiates, especially fentanyl, is we actually had someone come in not too long ago. Her fentanyl habit was 40, four zero bags a day. Oh my God. So significant, significant. So the reason I bring that up is because if you know someone that, who that's actually like needs- watching The Walking Dead, you know, her, if she doesn't do something, that can't continue. Right. right. So the issue there becomes if she's someone who's notorious for using that amount, obviously a higher concentration of naloxone for someone in the general public, like a family member or whatever, if she should overdose, it could be a significant amount of fentanyl that was used and you're gonna need a significant amount of naloxone to reverse it. So if you're able to give eight milligrams at once, that's fine. Where there's some concern is, is that, and we've had this in the East Coast where if you give significant amounts of naloxone, you have the potential to block the fentanyl or the other opiates on board, which you want to do so the person survives. But if it's a poly substance or mixed ingestion or overdose, by blocking the opiate, do you then have full reign of the cocaine or methamphetamine or synthetic cannabinoid in the person's system to overwhelm their body and you don't have an antidote for that? Do they actually become, and we've had this happen where people, patients have become extremely violent. And it's not because of the fact they use naloxone to reverse them. It's because the other agent that's on board now takes over the body and they become very aggressive and very violent. But like you said, we can use uh, vials of naloxone in the hospital. We can use intranasal that's very uh, inexpensive. We can put them in naloxone infusions, but that's not the case with the general public. So if you're able to provide them with something for someone who may significantly overdose on a opiate or fentanyl that is a much higher amount, you're going to need much more naloxone. And the last thing you'd want to have happen is I only had two naloxones in my home and I gave them eight milligrams. I needed more and you don't have it. And so I'm sure you've had these cases as well. We've had people that had to get reversed with 10, 12, 14 milligrams of naloxone and then put them on a naloxone infusion because whatever it is that they took, if it's a long acting or synthetic opioid that we don't even know about that's out there, like we talked about isoniazine or something else, you may need significant amounts of naloxone. And, and what better way to do that to get it exposed to them at home or in the field before they even get to the hospital, hopefully reverse them long enough for then you and I to be able to take over their care and have them survive. Right. I, I think you make a very good point. What's worse, not having enough and having somebody die or giving too much and, uh, you know, uh, oh, you know, oh, well, so your meth is, we could deal with that. We could deal with that. Uh, but, not right. having, have... but not having enough. And if you talk, and I don't know if the study was done, people who are reversed, how many doses are they getting? I bet you they're getting two. Yeah, it's pretty high. It's pretty high and because we've had that. And the other thing is we've actually had um, accidental exposure with law enforcement. We've had individuals who've gotten exposed and they've had to be reversed with naloxone in the field, actual police oh officers. Oh, my God, we're going to have to have this discussion. This is a problem. So, there so there have been no documented cases, no documented cases of uh, officers who've overdosed. That's where, so for example, the, the case that you uh, gave, the patient came in the hospital and they needed more and more and more drugs, um, and, and then it finally got reversed. I've had those cases too, but I get my drug screen, and they're, and I'll have patients like, well, I got eight doses of uh, naloxone, and it's still not working. Should we give more? It's, let me see if they're breathing, if they're stable. You know, Let's see what's going mm -hmm. on. I get the, the tox screen, their urine. Um, I get a, a cath urine. They're out, right? So I, I get my urine right away. Um, there's no fentanyl. They, there was, no, this was not a fentanyl overdose. This was meth and benzos and marijuana and other things. So you need the data. And so similar to the officer, um, cases, and we definitely hear about that throughout the United States. They, they, these stories, uh, make the newspaper. Uh, there hasn't been, uh, documented, uh, law enforcement exposure, um, to fentanyl that caused an overdoses. 
Um, I did a whole podcast on that with uh, Dr. Lewis Nelson, who we went like, over, you know, case by case through the newspaper. Um, so might I tell law enforcement officers is if this happens, get ad, ask for the test. You want to know what you're exposed to. Is this what you want to know? Something happens to you. You want to know what happens to you. Um, you know, get a drug screen and find out what's going on. Um, the the law enforcement unions are are worried about that because what if the officer tests positive for marijuana or a drug that they don't want to be exposed? I think there's ways to mitigate that. I mean, that's still health protected privacy. You don't have to share that um, with your employer, but you would want to know if you were exposed. Sure, exactly. If you had some kind of exposure, what yeah. actually was a substance that you had a, a, an issue with, and in particular, especially if you're mentioning, if it was accidental, yeah, you know, where you just got exposed to something, what was actually in my system, so uh, you would know that. But with regards to people using naloxone, they have used, we have had to use significant amounts uh, at times with individuals, and some, like you said, have had to go with naloxone. The key there is that because, as you know, with regards to nasal, intranasal naloxone, the half-life, how long it lasts, is only a... a a shorter period of time where they may need to get subsequent dosing. And that's one of the advantages as to why we put them on naloxone infusions, because once you're infusing it into their body through their veins, you can obviously give them as much as you need and can titrate the, the drip rate up or down, depending upon what level of consciousness sedation you want the person to actually have. Great. So to go back to Guanhui's question, vaping has changed the landscape, both of the legal and illicit market. Um, the summation of that, how would you sum it up? Well, I, I agree with you when you said about, I think that the vaping scenario of actually making that available was a mistake. And you mentioned we have made plenty of those, and this is definitely, I think, one of those. It has not really led to a decrease or cessation of smoking in a vast majority of people. I think it's probably helped some, and I'm sure there's going to be anecdotal cases that show that it did help somebody stop. But I think that that is a, a small number. And then the question is, as you and I know from the medical world, when you look at a risk-benefit ratio, again, you know, what happens with regards to, yeah, there's some people that benefit it, but where more people put at risk and more people actually had detrimental outcomes with regards to vaping. And I think the concern there is that, as you mentioned, young people and youth, that we have created a whole nother group of individuals who are now addicted to nicotine, significantly addicted to nicotine at much higher levels than if they even had just started smoking. And with regards to that, we're going to be dealing with those health consequences for quite some time and have all these individuals that we're trying to get off of nicotine and stop them from vaping. And there's even studies that show that even those who do vape actually leads to them going on to smoking. So now with regards to where you weren't exposed to as much supposedly in your lungs by vaping it, because that was what was protective, if people then engage in tobacco smoke, uh, that they're actually going to increase their exposure to that. And so now what you thought was going to prevent them from having exposure to tobacco from smoking it has actually led to just the opposite, more people using it. And that's, we have had, as you know, being an ER physician, we've had health consequences of nicotine in this country for quite some time. And smoking in particular, that had been really catastrophic with regards to leading to disease and significant health problems. And we're just going to have another generation now because they have vaped who are going to have those similar problems with peripheral vascular disease and coronary artery syndrome and all that kind of stuff from the negative impacts of exposure to nicotine at pretty high levels too. That's the other thing, even more so than if they had just probably smoked. Yeah. So, uh, right. Not smart health policy. I think it was very brave of the FDA to try to pull uh, Juul and all those vape products. Uh, I was really surprised to, to see that they are, uh, you know, are able to take such a harsh action. Um, if we want to save lives, that's one of the things that you you would do. I mean, it's like uh, personal freedom versus public health. And there's always that kind of debate. I want to really thank uh, Guanhui for your question, very smart question. Uh, I know that you're working on the issue of drugs and substance use um, and learning a, a lot through your residency. Uh, you're going to have a wonderful, amazing career ahead of you. You're helping um, decipher the science uh, behind that, helping the National Marijuana Initiative uh, with your work. So I really thank you for that. And Bill, what an absolute pleasure. Always great to talk to you. Every time I talk to you, I learn something new. So, and this is no exception. So I so appreciate that. Um, thank you. I, I hounded you to get you on this show and I am so glad that I did. 
Well, thank you very much. And I'm glad that you hounded me. And I'm glad we finally got together with regards to uh, to having this conversation. And I'm as far as well as you know that I'm actually working this week. So with the overnights, and it is a full moon. We know what that all means. It's been quite uh, busy there. But I'm glad that we were able to connect. I truly appreciate uh, your pursuit of, of uh, having this happen. And also, I really, really sincerely appreciate the invitation and opportunity to, to be part of your High Truths podcast and also to share this information with hopefully as many people as we can. And by you putting this forum together, uh, we've enjoyed listening to your other High Truths conversation with many other experts, uh, way more qualified than me, that's for sure, with regards to who you've had on here, to really get the word out and share significantly important information about what's really transpiring with this whole substance abuse issue in our country. And I, and I think that knowledge is power. And, and by you providing that for your High Truths podcast, uh, more people become informed, hopefully make better decisions for themselves, others, family members, and that that's a good thing. And that's what we need is to get as much education information out there as we can, especially to kind of refute some of the, the myths and some of the other things are actually being propagated about how safe it is. And it's really not that bad. And it actually is. So thank you for doing that. And again, thank you for the invitation to participate. I really enjoyed the conversation with you and always do every time we have a chance to get together and, and catch up with things. So uh, hopefully that'll happen more often now, uh, even though we're on opposite ends of the country, but uh, we appreciate the invitation. So thank you again very much for having me today. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library, translated for public understanding, Listen to their speaker series and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Mm-hmm.